Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grand Rounds. Uh, great to have all of you. Hopefully you're enjoying your cup of coffee this morning and enjoying the cool weather that's out there. I think 95 degrees or something like that. Uh, it's great to have you. Uh, just uh, you know, some interesting notes from, uh, from the governor. Uh, this, these are sent to me every morning by Emily Boucher, who's our government relations associate. And this was interesting because normally they begin with COVID-19 and this one did not, uh, although it is related at the end. Uh, I understand early this morning, the Connecticut State Senate passed a bill that would legalize recreational marijuana use. The bill will go now to the House in the next two days before becoming law. Um, the other thing which is really interesting and I think relevant to us is that while we have done a lot of telemedicine and it's been fantastic, there are now some reports indicating that uh, people who don't have access to the technology actually gonna, will be uh, potentially hurt. And I think there is a, there's a whole emphasis of, of our underserved communities that, uh, especially those that are not uh, native English speakers that, that they may be not being served as well by only doing telemedicine. So for, for those of us who do that, I think we need to start looking at getting our patients back into the office, uh, despite the benefit of having telemedicine as a safety net during uh, COVID-19. Uh, the the uh, last thing is we have been looking at vaccine rates and it's, uh, Connecticut has done really well for people over 65, I think close to 89, almost 90% of the residents have been vaccinated. The problem is that uh, we, in, in our cities, Hartford in particular, we are pretty low with vaccination rates, not in that age group, but certainly across the city of Hartford, less than 50% have been vaccinated, which is very different than the rest of Connecticut. So we still have a lot of a long way to go. On Friday, John Shriver will give an update and we'll have the whole hour for John. I will moderate the questions and in terms of COVID, COVID-19, myocarditis, all the issues. So please log in on Friday for the typical SD experts. The last thing as an announcement is that uh, we have made uh, the executive decision that is uh, next year we will continue virtual grand rounds uh, with the exception of, uh, of a few of the special grand rounds and and we'll give uh, you know some of our colleagues the, uh, the, the choice uh, in certain cases to have uh, an in-person grand rounds uh, but again most of the sessions which have been really successful with getting great speakers and great attendance will continue to be virtual so please uh, schedule accordingly with your office uh, in western Connecticut and across the across the country, all throughout Connecticut, uh, and we will be uh, continuing this great series. Uh, and I wanna thank our, our CME team for doing a great job with our Grand Round series. Uh, so I'm gonna now ask uh, our team of speakers, uh, Dr. Brancato, Dr. Campbell, Dr. Grossi, and Dr. Shoem to uh, speak about button battery ingestion injuries, a national crisis. I'm gonna ask uh, Dr. Shoem to begin the session by introducing it, Scott. Thank you, Juan, and thank you everyone for joining us here this morning. Um, our grand rounds this morning will be a group effort by Victoria Grassi from Gastroenterology, John Brancato from Emergency uh, Department, Brendan Campbell from General Surgery, and myself from Otolaryngology on button battery ingestion injuries, a national crisis. Next slide, please. Uh, here is uh, today's agenda. Uh, we'll be speaking about the mechanism of injury, which may surprise many of you because many people have misimpression of how button batteries cause injury, the clinical diagnosis, surgical and post-op management, and preventive uh, strategies. Next slide, please. So why is this a, a huge problem? Next slide, please. Here's the culprit. 
uh, the lithium ion three volt 20 millimeter battery, which was developed in the 1980s, but popularized initially by Sony in the 1990s, and then developed commercially by every battery maker has become pervasive and ubiquitous in all of our lives. They are in almost everything we use, including my car key fob here, and almost all devices you have at home. In fact, I was walking my dog yesterday in my neighborhood, and there were three of them sitting on the sidewalk. So, you know, it's amazing uh, how many of these you come in contact with in your daily lives, but surprising to parents uh, once they uh, are unfortunately faced with a serious injury in their child. Next slide, please. Toby Litovitz uh, started the National Poison Control Center in 1980 in Washington, D.C. through Georgetown University. And then she also started, as an offshoot of this, the National Button Battery Control Center once she started to see the uptick in injuries. Uh, as of today, there are over 3,500 calls uh, each year. Next slide, please. And I just want you to focus on the black uh, dotted line and the graph that shows the amazing and disturbing increase in the number of moderate and what they call major injuries, meaning serious permanent injuries in children as well as deaths. Next slide, please. We're going to have uh, Victoria Grassi talk uh, about the mechanism of injury. Thank you. Good morning, everyone, and, and thank you for joining us. So I figured I would bring it back down to basics, talking about the anatomy of a button battery. So it's formed by compressing metals and metal oxides on either side of an elect um, electrolyte soak separator, which you'll see on that diagram there, usually made of sodium or potassium hydroxide. That um, is then placed in a metal casing held together with an insulating gasket, which contains various metals, zinc, manganese, silver, lithium, and I think the batteries that we're more familiar with are cased with lithium. Next slide. So those that are made of lithium have a three volt electrical output. These batteries are the size of a coin, any, ranging anywhere from 16 to 25 mil, uh, millimeters. And these are the ones that pose the highest risk of injury as they are usually get stuck in various body parts. So I know we focus on the esophagus, but kids also put these in their nose and their ear, uh, other various orifices. And as you see here, um, you know, according to scale, a lot of times, you know, they're the size of a quarter. And sometimes, unfortunately, uh, families may think it's a coin versus versus a battery, and it, it is a problem if it goes undetected. So those that are made from alkaline or other non-lithium metals that are of a lesser volt, 1.5 or smaller in diameter, those are out there and still pose a risk, but it's really these three volt ones that we're focusing on. Next slide. So in terms of how, how does this happen? 
primarily the mechanism of injury is the gener generation of an electrolytic current that hydrolyzes the fluid from the esophageal mucosa and produces, a hydro produces hydroxide at the battery's negative pole. So this top bullet point is the primary mechanism um, of injury. So when those um, hydroxide ions are generated, that causes liquefactive necrosis, thus leading to devastating esophageal injury. The second point, leakage of battery contents, that is more so a later mechanism of injury and hopefully one that we try to avoid. So when batteries are in there for longer than about two hours or so, yes, you have that um, hydrolysis reaction. And then by virtue of the battery sort of, you know, descent, not um, the, the, the batteries becoming compromised, then you can have leakage of contents, but that is not the primary mechanism of injury. And then also adding to why the esophagus is um, such a concerning location of bat button batteries, which I'll get into, also the mechanical pressure on the surrounding tissue. Next slide. So focusing again on the hydrolysis reaction. So when lodged in a location in contact, most notably the esophagus, the battery undergoes um, electricity um, electrolysis. At the negative pole of the battery, hydroxide ions and hydrogen gas are produced. When the hydrogen accumulates, this results in the corrosive injury and liquefactive necrosis. Next slide. So uh, I figured we'll have a little video which can say a thousand words of how, how quickly um, and seriously a button battery can cause injury. Please play. I think just click the, the box. Well, we are having some technical difficulties that we <laughs> may have anticipated. Um, so really what this is a video of is um, a button battery in a chicken cutlet. And so um, really showing a time-lapse video of how it basically singes and um, and injures the, the tissue. So it really is an impressive um, uh, video that unfortunately we, we can't show today. Um, next slide. So another interesting piece is how do these differ from other batteries? Because batteries are a ubiquitous, you know, part of our household. So the terminal of a button battery covers almost the entire surface area of the, bat of the battery. And then that greatly increases the chance of the secretions um, completing a circuit, which results in the hydrolysis reaction. So when you have other batteries like AA or AAA batteries, the terminals at the end are smaller and they're also separated by a longer length of the battery. AA and AAA batteries are also narrow, so we do have patients that ingest them, but rather they're getting lodged in the esophagus, they usually, you know, pass in the esophagus, usually into the stomach or intestine. So even though these batteries have the same sort of mechanism of how they work, the button batteries are, are more dangerous because those terminals are so close together and there's a higher likelihood of that circuit being completed. Next slide. So for esophageal button batteries, what makes the esophagus such a dangerous location? And that's for multiple reasons. So the hydrolysis reaction alone is not sufficient to create significant damage. You have to have that reaction plus mechanical pressure 
from um, from the button battery and all together. Um, so the, the combination of those two is, is fairly dangerous. So the esophagus is also a higher location because the esophagus tends to have weaker peristalsis in comparison to other locations in the GI tract. So not only is it a narrow environment, but it just also doesn't move as well. Also, and Dr. Broncato will, will address these, there are several anatomic locations um, of narrowing in the esophagus that lead to susceptibility of the battery getting lodged. Next slide. I also wanted to just briefly talk about gastric or intestinal button batteries. So these should be removed within 24 hours uh, sooner if there's more than one. And most of these pass on their own without event and what makes it different in these parts of the GI tract. So when they're in the stomach and beyond, the battery's moving freely in the lumen aided by adequate peristalsis of the rest of the gastrointestinal tract. And therefore the battery is surrounded by large volumes of fluid due to insufficient hydroxide produced. So meaning that it's not lodged in one location, there's a less likelihood of the hydrolysis reaction occurring, thus making these um, locations for button batteries less dangerous. Next slide. All right. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, thank you, Vicki. Um, if we're going to impact this problem, uh, it's very important that we um, understand how the patients present and identify them as quickly and efficiently as possible. Um, it's incumbent on us in emergency medicine and primary care um, to understand how patients with button battery ingestions present. Um, on, on the bright side, um, if you can call it that, most often there is um, a history of battery ingestion and either the ingestion is witnessed or the child or a sibling perhaps discloses the ingestion to a caregiver. Um, when you see them in the emergency department or in your office, um, important things to ask um, would be, if at all possible, um, what battery type um, was ingested, if it's known, um, if it's a lithium battery, for example, which we know um, has a higher risk because of the higher voltage, um, and the size-wise batteries greater than or equal to 20 millimeters being the most dangerous, um, the charge state. Um, so we may think um, on the surface that a dead battery, a uh, battery that's been removed from an object because it's um, not functioning anymore may not present the same risk. However, dead batteries may not have enough current to um, uh, produce uh, electricity to function um, a piece of equipment, but it will still produce enough current to cause tissue damage. Um, the time of ingestion, if at all known, is very important um, from a risk standpoint. Um, the number of batteries, if that's known, and then any co-ingestants, particularly magnets, um, which can cause um, other things uh, in the GI tract, um, magnet and battery or magnets together um, can um, cause pressure uh, on different pieces of GI tissue. So having an index of suspicion is really, really important. Um, in 2010 in pediatrics, there was a case series of 13 deaths um, after button battery ingestion. And um, seven of them were misdiagnosed due to a lack of history of ingestion and nonspecific presenting symptoms. And these are things that we see every day in the emergency department. So fever, vomiting, um, lethargy, poor appetite, cough, wheezing, irritability, dehydration. Um, most of the fatal or major outcome ingestions um, were unwitnessed. So 
like I said, the majority of ingestions will come with some kind of history of ingestion, but the ones that don't are the ones we need to be the most concerned about. Um, Symptom-wise, uh, chest pain or cough, especially of acute onset, um, nausea, vomiting, um, hematemesis, uh, difficulty swallowing, um, abdominal pain, fever, especially any of these things that are of pretty acute onset. Um, strider or wheezing without a typical viral prodrome should be a little bit of concern. Coughing, choking, gagging with oral intake, any of those things. And then acute anorexia or refusal of oral intake should be a red flag as well. So immediate management and evaluation of a patient with a known or suspected button battery ingestion. If the ingestion has occurred within the past 12 hours and the patient is asymptomatic, so if you've um, done x-rays and identified the ingestion, um, uh, or if you have a high suspicion, it's a, a reported ingestion, like I said, within 12 hours and the patient is asymptomatic, <clears throat> excuse me, give 10 milliliters of honey um, if they are greater than or equal to 12 months of age, of course, or sucralfate or caraphate suspension, 500 milligrams. And the honey may be repeated every 10 minutes. And this, these um, items serve to mitigate the tissue damage while the patient is being evaluated and, and um, transferred to the operating room for uh, removal. If there's a known or suspected ingestion with delayed presentation, so greater than 12 hours, um, and or if the patient is symptomatic, so if they have pain, chest pain, if there's any concern whatsoever for deeper tissue damage, do not give honey or sucralfate. If there's a known or suspected ingestion, of course, send the patient to the emergency department. Um, from a radiographic evaluation standpoint, um, there are certain things that we look for. We want to have a two-view um, of the chest, so AP and lateral radiographs. And as Vicki alluded to earlier, there are several locations where foreign bodies tend to lodge in the esophagus. Um, and this is at sites of um, anatomic narrowing. So at the cricopharyngeus, uh, around the level of the thoracic inlet, um, at the level of the aortic arch, and at the level of the lower esophageal sphincter. And specific patients may have other sites predicated on their own specific history. So a patient with a history of a, a tracheoesophageal fistula, for example, or some other kind of narrowing may have a different location of their foreign body. On x-ray, um, the button batteries have this bilaminar structure, which creates a double ring or a double halo on the AP view. And these are um, actual radiographs of patients um, seen in our emergency department in the past. Um, so on the AP view, we have that double ring, as you can see on the lower left of the slide. And then on the right-hand side, there's a step-off, which is at the separation of the anode and cathode on the lateral view. Radiographic findings of perforation, important also, hopefully we won't see this very often on initial presentation. Um, free air in the mediastinum, free air in the prevertebral soft tissue, free peritoneal air, and subcutaneous air or emphysema. If the patient has presented um, to an outside emergency department, 
um, important thing is to transfer the patient as quickly as possible. Um, for transfer to Connecticut Children's, um, call 1-833-PEDS-NOW. Um, if it's an esophageal button battery that's identified, time is of the essence. So send the patient via the fastest mode of transport. Um, if the patient is symptomatic, they should be sent by emergency medical services, by ambulance. Um, you call Connecticut Children's Emergency Department via one call after the transport is arranged. It's better to get things in process first and then notify us second. Um, our team in the emergency department will activate our button battery team for rapid transfer to the operating room. And Dr. Campbell will speak more about our button battery team. Thank you. Thanks very much, John and uh, Scott and Vicki. This has been a lot of fun working together to put together this uh, Grand Rounds. So the purpose of my section of the talk is, is really twofold. One, I'm going to talk about what do we do once we've identified an esophageal button battery. And then two, I'm going to talk about um, how we've gotten better uh, at dealing with the situation, which uh, can be very difficult simply because these are high acuity, low frequency events. So we've learned about the locations of where the button battery usually gets hung up when kids swallow it. Uh, we know that the longer it's in there, uh, the more damage it's going to cause. And it's the voltage and chemical composition of the button battery which causes the damage. So the bottom line is timely removal of these is imperative. And the quicker you get it out, the better outcome or the less damage that you're going to have. So uh, what we really worry about, and this was alluded to in the epidemiologic slide that showed the increase in button battery uh, ingestions over time, are these disasters. The tracheoesophageal fistula, uh, the esophago-aortic fistula, which you could imagine can lead to torrential hemorrhage, uh, perforation and mediastinitis. Those are the three things that can kill you from these ingestions. Uh, esophageal stricture and vocal cord paralysis are bad, but they're usually not lethal. And the picture on the right is a patient of mine uh, who um, you can see the uh, damage there. Even if you're not an experienced endoscopist, you know that doesn't look normal. So uh, removing them, uh, yeah, there are two approaches that, that uh, clinicians will use. You can use flexible endoscopy. You can use rigid endoscopy. It really doesn't matter. Whatever you're most experienced with and will allow you to get a secure grasp on the button battery. Uh, you can see here in the photo, there is a button battery. Uh, it's kind of in that black hole where... Um, with some mucus around it. And that's what you have to either grasp or get a basket around to remove. So we heard about the, the different locations where the button battery will get hung up in the esophagus. I would say most commonly we'll see it uh, right at the thoracic inlet. So it's, it's fairly proximal, but can still be very difficult to extract. Oops, let's go back one. So uh, it, it's really not rocket science getting these out. You, uh, when, when you're doing the endoscopy, you need to protect the airway. You need to maintain control of the object during extraction, which is easier said than done many times. And as you're removing it, you want to do your best to avoid causing any additional damage. And that can be the real challenge sometimes of getting objects out of the stomach endoscopically because you've got to drag it back through 
the esophagus. So this is a brief video uh, illustrating the type of damage that you get from a, a button battery. Hopefully it's gonna play for us here. Um, this uh, patient I remember well because uh, it illustrates the, the challenges that these types of cases present. You know, it was Sunday night about 10 o'clock during a snowstorm when this child decided to present. So that, uh, that can, can create a host of challenges in terms of uh, getting the right people in the right place at the right time. It looks like for some reason it's not going to play. Oh, here we go. So this is the area of damage. This is where the um, battery was lodged. You can see the discolored mucosa with the furrowing uh, posteriorly there. Uh, and then you will come back and come above the area of injury where you'll see normal uh, esophageal mucosa. Obviously, that's what it's supposed to look like. And you can clearly see the difference there in uh, appearance of the mucosa. So how do you know how well you're doing? And this can be a challenge. And I'll give you a brief sort of hopefully humorous example. So my daughter uh, won the spelling bee for her grade in school. And I was certainly proud of her and would love to take credit for the books we read. I read with her and maybe some of her innate intelligence that she got from her mother. Uh, but but how good a speller is she really? Uh, did she just get easy words? Was the competition not very good? So I put her to task after I said, uh, let's see how good you are. I'll give you three chances. How do you spell Hirschsprung's disease? And this was her attempt and she failed. Um, but the, the, impor the importance of this silly story is when you're trying to figure out how well you're doing with these cases is you really need to scrutinize them closely and look at the opportunities that you have for improvement. So in 2016, we had this kid come in, 2100 was promptly triaged. But you can see there were some challenges in sort of getting this kid to the operating room, and it took a, a lot longer than you would expect. And it's never any one uh, individual or one department's fault. You can have a you can have um, a delay in getting the X-ray ordered. You can have a delay in getting the X-ray read. You can have a delay in transport of getting the patient to the operating room. So, when we looked at this case and another case, you can really see that this kid came in at uh, 5:45 in the morning and didn't actually get to the operating room to have the procedure started until 9.15. So in scrutinizing this, we said, you know, there really ought to be some opportunities for us to get better. So one of the quality programs that we have at Connecticut Children's is the National Surgical Quality Improvement Program, uh, which uh, is through the American College of Surgeons. And one of the really cool pilot uh, projects ongoing is uh, a process measure pilot. And, and it deals with five uh, time-sensitive clinical conditions, esophageal button battery being one of them, and really looks at the process measures and, and allows you to compare your institution to other institutions to see how well you're doing. And we've been able to do it with all five of these conditions, but I'm going to highlight briefly button battery here. So um, this is us compared to, to 13 other hospitals, and you may not be able to see, but the, the fourth hospital in, there's a, 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 a diamond around our center. So when it comes to presentation to establishing the, establishing the diagnosis of esophageal button battery, we're actually pretty darn good at doing it in about half an hour. 
Uh, and then when you look at from time of presentation to actually induction of anesthesia in the operating room to extract the button battery, we're still doing pretty good, uh, less than two hours compared to the, you know, the 13 other hospitals that put data in. Uh, so, so this is certainly something to be proud of, but you have to be cautious, right? It's, there are only two cases here, and there, there's always an opportunity with these rare events that happened at very unpredictable times to do better. So when we're trying to put in place systems that are reliable, it doesn't matter what time of day, what day of week, or who's on call, uh, you want to you follow what, what's been known as a Donabedian model. You want to look at structure, processes, and outcomes uh, to do better. And this diagram on the right, I can't take credit for it, but is really important uh, and highlights if you can create a process that simplifies and standardizes how you do things, you're going to make your ability to provide care uh, better. So, uh, the team of uh, presenters uh, that you have here this morning, we got together a couple of years ago and, and brainstormed onto how we can make the process of caring for these patients better. So what we came up with is adding the uh, uh, button, esophageal button batteries to the critical airway response team activation. The advantage of this is that it, when, when one of these cases is identified, the OR team is uh, notified immediately it uh, mobilizes a multi-specialty team who can optimize the extraction of the button battery. Uh, and it follows the same standardized practices that we use for pediatric trauma, ECMO, and code blue. So what is the critical airway response team more specifically? Um, it's uh, the, the team that puts together anything you need to manage a difficult airway. Uh, it goes out to a, a multi-specialty group and prompts the OR to set up the equipment we need to deal with the airway or the esophageal button battery. So when do you activate it? Well, you activate it in situations like these, rare events, but ones that we see, gunshot wounds to the face, huffing of propane when TPN inadvertently gets infused into the soft tissues of the neck, this toothbrush you can see embedded in the back of a kid's uh, uh, mouth, which is why you tell your kids not to bounce on the bed when you're uh, with a toothbrush in your mouth. But these are the types of circumstances. So button battery fits in well with it. So uh, when a button battery comes in like this one on the 2nd of May of this year, uh, this page goes out to everybody who's on the team, uh, lets them know uh, where it is. 59200 is the emergency department. And when you get that page, you don't call anybody, you get in your car and you come to the hospital if you're on call and part of the team. So this is part of the clinical management algorithm that we came up with. It, it defines how you activate it and what happens after the activation occurs. And down in the box on the bottom, it talks a little bit about the intraoperative management, which I won't bore you with, but it gives some guidance, especially if you might have somebody on who, who hasn't done this before, hasn't done it recently. So did it make a difference when we put this in place? Uh, you bet it did. Uh, so before we had the algorithm in place, it took 167 minutes for the 14 cases we had. And after, uh, in all four cases we've had, we've been able to, from the time the patient arrived in the emergency department uh, to getting the button battery removed took less than an hour. And that's pretty darn impressive. So 
Well, this is encouraging and we're proud of the results we have. We have to be vigilant because it's very easy to get tripped up in these cases. Uh, it's only been four cases and maybe there's a Hawthorne effect, but we're gonna continue to monitor it closely uh, and make sure that we can uh, get these button batteries out as quickly as, as possible. And really, I, I think the, the, the key to this and a lot of the quality work that we do is making it as simple as possible and uh, build in uh, redundancy uh, to make the system as reliable as possible. All right, I'm gonna turn it back over to Dr. Schoem for the uh, duration, and then we'll be uh, happy to entertain your questions at the end. Brendan, thank you so much. Uh, and so before we move on, I just wanted to emphasize two main issues that I want to make sure that you all understand. One is time of a, is of the essence. So no matter where you are, if you're in a community emergency department somewhere, get that patient as quickly as possible once you identify that it's a button battery to a center like ours where we can enable the patient to get to the operating room as quickly as possible and remove it. The second principle is what you see is not what you get. And by that, I mean, when we remove the button battery from the esophagus and it looks awful, but you don't see a perforation, there is an ongoing and delayed response that takes place. So you may still develop a perforation of the esophagus that you don't see initially. And that's where some other groups who don't understand this have gone into trouble where they think everything is fine and they start letting the child eat whatever they want within a few days. And so you need to make sure that you have people taking care of these patients who know all the issues that are involved with button battery injuries. So what can you do about all of this? Well, back in 2012, several professional societies, including the subsections of the American Academy of Pediatrics, otolaryngology, general surgery, peds GI, radiology, emergency department, all got together and along with the American Bronchoesophagology Association, uh, ASPO, which is American Society of Pediatric Otolaryngology and the American Academy of Otolaryngology started a button battery task force with industry partners such as Intertech, as well as safety groups such as the Consumer Product Safety Commission. We then also brought in the American College of Surgeons. And since 2012, we have all had periodic meetings talking about research, mitigation strategies, and preventive strategies. Uh, next slide, please. And so here is just the, the schema of all the different task force members and stakeholders of the National Button Battery Task Force. And this includes the, uh, the National Button Battery Center in Washington, DC that has been run by Toby Litovitz for many years. And she updates us on the statistics with uh, each meeting. Uh, next slide, please. And so in 2019, we developed our own task force, uh, as Brendan alluded to, that includes the, the members who are speaking today, as well as Samantha Hell, who's a pediatric surgery APRN. 
And we've been doing some great work, I think, uh, in, in mitigation strategies and prevention strategies. Next slide, please. So what are the things that you can do? Well, it's really difficult to get mandatory legislation and there are so many battery manufacturers that even if we get groups like Duracell and Energizer uh, on board, you have Chinese companies making these batteries that won't play along nicely in the sandbox and will do their own thing. And, and so you need to be careful thinking that you're going to make great strides with legislation. You often really can't. What we're looking for is voluntary um, rather than mandatory changes by the battery industry by doing things like individual packaging instead of packaging each button battery in a stack of 10 or a stack of 20 so that you open one and there are nine of them sitting around. And so if you have individual packaging, less likely that a toddler is going to grab one and stick it in their mouth. The other thing we've been working on for years are toys and all other products that use these batteries to have what we call a secure battery compartment, meaning that it takes two movements to be able to open up the battery compartment or that it is secured in there by a screw that makes it harder for a toddler to be able to open up the compartment and get to the, the battery. We've been doing plenty of parental education through professional societies, parents' magazines, all kinds of direct marketing to parents, but even still, the number of button battery injuries seems to be on the upslope rather than on the downslope. And so we're swimming upstream on parental education. Two main mitigation strategies that we're working on are some of the companies who manufacture batteries are willing to try using a non-toxic bitter coating. And on the left side here, you can see that if, if they can make it taste really bad, maybe the child will spit it out instead of swallowing it. And then one of the most exciting things that is in development right now, but is proprietary by the, the company that's working on this is trying to develop a neutralization coating strategy so that once the battery is ingested, it develops this um, coating that stops electrical currents from continuing. So you're not closing the circuit by the esophageal mucosa. This can be really exciting uh, if it works out, but we're probably at least a few years away from, from this uh, becoming commercialized. But this will, we hope, become a game changer. Next slide, please. And with that, I wanted to thank all of my team members. It's been a great collaboration. Uh, we, we keep tweaking things and hopefully make it better for kids and parents. And we're happy to take your questions. Thank you. Uh, thank you to the four of you for a, a truly, truly outstanding presentation. And more, more importantly, for the work that you're doing on behalf of keeping children safe and, and uh, Brendan measuring this is really important in highlighting how you're improving 
the care and the prevention is really really outstanding. So um, we have uh, we certainly have time for questions, and uh, so, so maybe both of you can come up to the podium, and then Vicky and uh, uh, and Scott are on the on the. Uh, I'll I'll start with a question for for any of you. I mean, uh, again, if you can recap uh, one, two, three for the pediatricians, if they get a phone call from uh, a parent, my three-year-old just swallowed one of these things. What's the one, two, three? in addition to get me to the emergency department. John, maybe. If it, the history is um, positive for a button battery ingestion, they should send the patient as quickly as possible to the emergency department. If there is a question, um, if the concern, for example, may be um, a coin ingestion, um, they should get an X-ray, two of you X-rays as quickly as possible and try and determine whether or not it is in fact a button battery. I mean, either one will need if it's in the esophagus, will need to be addressed. Uh, but the button battery ingestion, of course, is the most time sensitive. I think one thing that I would just add to that, not what John said is exactly right, but I think you, the, the importance of when you can get pediatric expertise to review these, it's critically important because we, had a, we have had a case within the last year or two where an x-ray was done at a community hospital and it was read as a coin ingestion. And, um, and, and I, it was no one's fault, but if you're not up to speed on what a button battery looks like compared to a coin, it can lead to a problem. Fortunately, in that case, the battery, you know, the, the charge was not optimal and the injury was not severe, but it could have been catastrophic because of the delay that it led to. Uh, and I would add um, additionally, if it's a known ingestion, um, go ahead and give, and, it's, and we know that the time frame is appropriate to go ahead and give the uh, 10 milliliters of honey um, in a patient who's over a year. Yeah, I was referring to, so because the phone call could be you're up in northern Maine in the cabin and, you know, these batteries are everywhere and they, and they saw the kid swallow it and what is the, by, by the time you get to an emergency department, it may be a long time. Okay, very good. Thank you. Um, uh, Scott, were you going to say something? No, I just want to uh, be sure that everyone on this program understands that we're not only educating parents, but we're also educating physicians, radiologists to be able to look for the step off and the, uh, the double halo sign, as well as emergency departments and community hospitals, not only in the state, but nationally. So there's a national effort of uh, physician education to be able to identify quickly and get the patient to the closest qualified center to take out the button battery. Uh, question from uh, uh, Patrick uh, Broderick, uh, a pediatrician. Uh, Thank you for your presentation of batteries in the stomach by radiology with no symptoms. Uh, um, if batteries in the stomach by radiology with no symptoms approach should be stat or urgent? So I, I would say that um, they would be urgent. Um, so stat would be for me in, in the esophagus. Um, so for me, um, anything that's urgent um, is within 24 hours. So if it's a button battery or any battery in the stomach, um, it's not as much of a concern for harm as if it is um, in the esophagus. Um, but I would say definitely refer patients who swallow any button battery um, or any battery to the emergency room. So just because the button battery is um, in the stomach, 
um, it definitely means that it needs to be um, tended to and removed. Um, previous guidelines used to say um, that these button batteries uh, can pass, but I think lately, I know all of my colleagues and myself, if there is any battery in the stomach and it's retrievable, that you go get it. Broderick is the chairman of emergency medicine at Danbury Hospital. Um, so I appreciate the question specifically from him. With regard to transfer, um, I would still transfer the patient so that we can remove the battery. Thank you. Uh, a comment from Dr. Pitigoff, uh, do all emergency responders know the lethality of this? John? Yeah. Yeah, I, I doubt, doubt it, to be quite honest. I mean, that's part of why we're doing this is to increase awareness of the problem. Um, I think from an EMS standpoint, uh, there may not have full understanding, although um, hopefully they'll be bringing patients in. Um, and uh, I shared the awareness of this talk specifically with my colleagues at all the emergency departments in the state. All right. Um, again, if you want to ask any questions, please go ahead and put them in, in the chat. Uh, we have sort of a quiet group today. I think you guys nailed it and told them everything they needed to know about this. And uh, uh, so maybe, uh, Brendan, if you can tell us, you know, the future of this. I mean, how do you, you, you talked about some preventative measures, but how do you see this changing moving forward? Well, I, I think what makes this difficult is anytime you have a rare event, um, you know, one, you know, we think this is important. Obviously, we put together this group and I've worked really hard on this, but I think you have to seize every opportunity that you have to make everyone aware. You know, it's, 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 it's not just parents, it's EMS, it's uh, outside emergency departments, it's family practice doctors, it, it's really everyone. And, and I think it's, unless you've seen a case, it's very difficult to understand how time sensitive and urgent an issue it is. Um, well, uh, you know, from my perspective as a pediatric surgeon who's interested in trauma, you know, the, the most important part of the talk is what Scott gave, talking about the innovative strategies that are being developed to prevent this from happening in the per first place. Because the best way to treat this is not to let it happen to begin with. So uh, I think if they can come up with a technology, uh, you know, a coding that allows this to uh, to, to um, not occur, the, you know, the bitter taste, because another thing that we didn't talk about is these can be an issue for pets as well. So having a bitter taste and, you know, preventing dogs from, uh, or cats or, you know, any type of animal you have from ingesting it is also uh, of concern. So I, I think the prevention is key and, 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 uh, and the more people we uh, educate about the time sensitive nature of esophageal button battery problem, the better. The question out of my mouth about pets, because I'm sure all of us have, you know, what do we do with the dog who ate one of these things? And um, uh, they don't don't bring him into our emergency department, right? I mean, I, th I think that would be the correct answer to that to that question. Um, okay, Scott and Vicky, any additional comments from you? No, I would say, you know, thank you um, to Connecticut Children's for giving us the opportunity to present this information and increase awareness um, about this. Thank you. Scott, final comments? I just wanted to thank everyone for listening in. I hope it was helpful and instructive. And our goal is to educate as many parents as to these dangers. If you go to YouTube, and look up some of the 
parental stories that they have filmed themselves and put on YouTube. It's uh, heartbreaking, uh, but that's unfortunately how we often make progress and develop entities like our button battery task force, our team, to be able to take care of these as quickly uh, and safely as possible. And so if anyone has any follow-up questions uh, on this, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. You know, we're passionate about this, which is why we do it. And uh, we want to be able to help answer your questions. So thank you very much for joining in with us this morning. Well, again, Brendan, John, uh, Scott, and Vicky for uh, a great grand rounds. Uh, and hope everyone stays safe. We'll see you on Friday for the Ask the Experts. And then again uh, next uh, Tuesday for Grand Rounds. Take care, everyone. Be safe. Bye-bye.